The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Hey everybody. Hope y'all are doing good. Uh, my name's Spencer. If I haven't met you yet, hopefully we get a chance to meet at some point this, uh, this weekend. Um, so welcome to the Pure and Holy Retreat. We're really excited you guys are here. And uh, what's up? And uh, as you guys know, or maybe hopefully all you guys know what we're talking about this weekend, we're talking about purity, but in particular we're talking about sexual purity. So we're talking about uh, saving sex until marriage. We'll, we'll be talking tomorrow in specific guy and girl uh, breakout sessions. We'll be talking about a lot of different issues that have to do with saving sex till marriage and sexual purity. And I'll be real, uh, just up front, I don't know if there's unbelievers in the room, but we're going to speak to you as though you are all believers. Because to talk to a non-believer about, hey, you should... Uh, not have sex with as many people as you can. To talk to a non-believer about that, they'd be like, what? Why in the world would I not be having sex until I'm married? Like, every song you hear on the radio is just glorifying sex over and over. Why, if it's so great, why in the world would we not be having sex? And to be honest, if you're a Christian, you, you might have had this thought too and been like, uh, yeah, okay, so I'm supposed to save sex till marriage because it's going to be so great once we get married. If that's the case, then why do so many married couples look miserable? <laughs> like, if sex is so good, why are married people so unhappy? And so what I want to do, I want to look, and we're going to talk about a lot of the specifics, a lot of practical things as far as uh, purity in our minds, purity with our thoughts, purity in relationships. But tonight, I really want to set the foundation for that. And I want to talk to you guys about the same thing that I talked to some of your parents about at the marriage conference. So we do a marriage conference here, and what we talk to your parents or your youth pastors, I know some of the youth pastors were here for that, what we talked to them about was authentic love as seen in the biblical covenant of marriage. Y'all have heard of marriage uh, called the, the marriage covenant, right? Y'all have heard people say that term? If you've not been in church very much, you might not have heard, you know, the marriage covenant or the covenant of marriage. But if you have been in church for a while, you've probably heard it called the covenant of marriage. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the different covenants in the scripture, just like I did with some of your parents uh, for this first part, to talk about why is marriage so good? Why is married sex so good? Why is the covenant of marriage so valuable? And why do people look so miserable if marriage is so good? And so, if you got a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 15. We'll have it on the board in just a little bit. But just to give you a little background about covenants. If you've, if you've been around church for a long time, you've read about the different covenants in Scripture. Even, you know, you, your Bible's divided up into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Originally, that was the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The word covenant is really, uh, it's talking about these different agreements that people would have. That particularly agreements that God had with his people throughout history. And so when you look through the scripture, you can see these different covenant agreements that God had with us, his people, throughout scripture. You can see four different covenants in the Old Testament, and then you see one new covenant, which is the New Testament. So 
All right, we're going to get nerdy. Y'all cool with that? We're going to dive deep. We're going to get into the scripture. We're not like into entertaining. We just want to dive deep into the scripture because, man, most of you guys are going to be married one day, believe it or not. Yeah, even that guy, even, even the weirdos in your group, you know, you'll find someone. You'll find that other weirdo, and it'll be great. You'll have the nerdiest, happiest marriage. It'll be wonderful. But most of you guys are going to be married one day, and we want you to have a marriage that is fulfilling and that is Christ-centered and that is not the miserable marriages you see around you. We want you to have real, life-giving, authentic covenant love. And so we want to look at the foundation for that covenant love that God has had with his people. Okay, so let's get nerdy for a minute, all right? So a covenant, if I can read you the nerdy definition, a covenant conveys the idea of a solemn commitment, guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. The covenant often includes blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Basically, it's an agreement. It's a contract that two people set up, in the old days before, you know, like for us now, if you're going to buy a house or buy a truck or something, you go and shake hands and say, all right, I'll give you X amount of dollars for this truck. Sounds good. Let's sign some papers. I'm saying I will pay. You're saying you will give the truck. That's an agreement now. But in the old days, they did a covenant very, very, very differently. So sometimes if you, you could have nations that would do a covenant. So you might have this strong nation that would overtake all these other nations and move in right next to this little weak nation. And what they do is they'd enter into a covenant with the little weak nation. They call it weak nation, a vassal nation. So you have this strong, sovereign nation that would enter into an agreement with this weak nation and say, all right, we won't beat all y'all up, all right? We're not going to destroy you. We're not going to steal your stuff if you pay taxes to us, all right? Here's how we'll mutually benefit. You pay us money so we get richer and we'll protect you. Sound good? Okay, let's make a covenant. So you can see covenants through um, with different nations. You can see covenants with individuals. And what they do a lot of times, this is gross if you've not been in church, uh, what they do a lot of times when they do a covenant, they actually call it cutting a covenant because this is inhumane in a sense, but they would, just, they would cut open animals to make an agreement. So instead of signing a paper, what they would do is if you had two people that are cutting a covenant, they would, you know, one person's buying a house from another or something, they would make an agreement by, they would get a bull or a goat or a ram or all three, sometimes birds, and they would saw that big old bull in half. And they would take one half of the bull and push it over here and the other half of the bull and they push it over here. Then they take a goat they'd saw him in half, and they put one half over here, one half over here. You, I mean, it, it's really a gruesome agreement, really, because you think of a bull. A bull has about 10 gallons of blood in his body. Imagine 10 milk jugs full of blood being poured out on the ground. It is a gross scene. So they'd, they'd separate a bull, they'd separate a goat, they'd separate a, uh, an ox, and what they'd do is the two people would get together, and they'd say, all right, I'd like to buy this house from you. And the other guy said, I would like to sell this house to you. All right, great. So let's make a covenant. We'll walk through the pieces together. So they have half on this side, half on this side. And the two men or whoever, they'd walk through the pieces and they would say, we're making an agreement together. The blessing is I get the house, you get the money. The curse is that what they're saying is, may I end up like this bull if I break my side of the covenant? May I end up torn apart and broken if I break my side of the covenant. So they'd walk through together and they promised blessings, but there was also like curses. So in the old days, back in the Old Testament, this is a pretty common practice. Like when we look at Genesis 15, Abraham and these guys would have been 
you know, they'd have been really familiar with this. For them, it wouldn't be weird. For us, it's really weird. You know, if your friend shows up to school and they got blood all over their shoes and you're like, what the heck happened? Oh, I'm, I, I bought a car this morning. I, you know, I, little agreement, you know. Like, that would be weird for us, but for them, it's like, oh, covenant. Yeah, we, let's get the ram. Let's get, let's get the bull. So that's the scene that's set for covenants, this agreement, this contract between two people. I'll do my part if you do your part, and if we don't, may this happen to us. Let's go to Genesis 15. God, here in this passage, is making a covenant with his people. In particular, God is making a covenant with one man, with Abraham. All right? Genesis 15, starting in verse, I think it's one. It might be seven. Tell me where I'm at when I say this, because I've got it written down here. All right? And God said to Abraham, I'm the Lord who brought... Thank you. I asked her to. And God said to Abraham, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans... I'm going to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, Lord, how am I to know that I will possess it? And God said to Abraham, bring me a bull. Uh, I'm sorry, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. All right, so pause. So God's like, all right, Moses. Uh, Moses. All right, Abraham. Psych. All right, Abraham, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham's like, how am I supposed to know you're going to give me this land? How am I supposed to know that I'm going to have all these kids when I'm an old man? And he says, okay, here's what you need to do. Go grab the bull, go grab the ram. And Abraham's like, oh, great, covenant. I know, I know what we're doing. We, you do your part, I'll do my part. You tell me my part, let's go with it. So he brought all of these and Abraham cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other. He didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right, so apparently... This is a spooky scene, all right? So Abraham, he's got all these animals bleeding out in the dust, and he's waiting. And apparently he waits so long that the buzzards start coming around and start trying to pick at these animals. So who, lo- who knows how long these birds are, I mean, the, the animals are laying there in the dust so long that Abraham's got to keep shooing the buzzards away, all right? And so it goes on, and it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. That is a spooky scene. So it gets dark. You've been driving these buzzards away. You've got all these dead animals bleeding in front of you. And then a dread, a fear, a darkness comes on Abraham. And it's, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Pause. We know that's Egypt, right? He's telling them, your folks are going to go into slavery in Egypt. All right, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried in a good old age. And they'll come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. That is freaky. Imagine you're out at night like, All right, me and God are going to make a deal. He does his part, I do my part, and it gets dark, and then you hear a voice from God, and all of a sudden, these lights just start floating in between these cut-up animals. You'd be like, oh, no, 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 (laughs) no thanks. All right, so it's freaky, but look what happens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch Pass between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To this offspring I give the land. And he goes on. Okay, so 
in the culture, this covenant was more like a contract that said, all right, I'll keep my side. Yep, I'll keep my side. Let's go through. However, what God is doing in this one verse is he is redefining covenant in that he alone walks through the pieces. You notice that? Usually it's two guys that walk through the pieces together. I'll keep up my end. I'll keep up my end. What he does with Abraham is he says, nope, you sit there, and I'm going to walk through here by myself. And he's got two lights that represent both people, that God is keeping a covenant with himself. That's a big deal. Why does God do that? Because he knows that Abraham, he can't uphold his end. He can't do it. So God is committing to keep both sides of the covenant. This is a redefinition of the word covenant because used to it worked like a contract. Now, when you start looking at the covenants in the Bible, you see that they're all filled with God's grace. So just really quick, you don't have to turn anywhere. I'll just tell you about them. So the four covenants in the, in the Old Testament that you see, one he makes with Noah. Y'all remember this? He makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. And you remember he puts the sign up in the heavens, the rainbow, because he's promising to Noah. The covenant is, I will never again do what? Yeah, I'll never again flood the earth. Okay, so that's the promise. That's the blessing from the covenant. And what does Noah have to do to make sure that happens? Nothing. Nothing. He, he doesn't have to do anything. God's meeting both sides. He's making a covenant with Noah, and he says, you know, I'm going to uphold both sides of this because he knows that all the people are going to get sinful again after the flood. That's the reason he sent the floods, because the people were sinful. And then after the flood, people are still sinful. He knows that man can't uphold their side of the covenant. In fact, two verses, two verses after God makes this covenant with Noah, we find Noah naked and drunk in his tent. We, we can't do it. We can't uphold our side of the covenant. If you look at the next one with Abraham, we just looked at it. The promise is, I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give blessing to all the people. I'm going to give you a land. And the conditions that, that Abraham has to uphold is, he has to obey and have faith. But then you know what God does? All right, no, Abraham, you have to have faith. Psst, here's some faith. He gives him the faith that he needs to be, to be obedient. Because he knows Abraham can't uphold his end of the covenant. And what's crazy is he makes a covenant with Abraham and two verses after the, two, after the pieces go through, two verses after, you see Abraham and Sarah having a conversation and Sarah's like, man, God's not going to give us kids. Look, you're, you're old as dirt. I'm so old. This shop is closed. We are done having kids. This ain't going to happen. You know what you should do, Abraham? You should go get with that young servant girl and have you some kids. And Abraham's like, all right, let's go. Two, two verses after God said, I will do this by myself because he knows Abraham can't keep the covenant. Look at the covenant with Moses. Really, the covenant at Sinai, you remember when he gives the law and he's thundering up on the mountain and he gives this covenant with Moses and really it's with all the people. But it's after he delivers them from Egypt, the promises he gives to Moses or to all the people is Israel will be my people a royal priest, a holy nation. I'm going to defend her against all of her enemies. I will be merciful. And the conditions are, what does Israel have to do? They have to obey. They have to obey the law. That's their side of it. But then you know what? God knows they can't uphold the law, so he puts in the sacrificial system. He's keeping both sides of that covenant too. You got to obey. Also, I know you won't, so here's forgiveness for when you don't. Every one of the covenants, God is upholding both sides. He makes the last covenant in the Old Testament is with David. He promises David, David, I'm going to give you 
a great name. I'm going to give you a place to live, rest from your enemies, and someone from your line is going to be on the throne forever. Now, God makes that. Oh, pause. The covenant with Moses, when God's making that covenant, he knows the people are going to break it. In fact, while God's making this covenant with Moses on top of the mountain, he knows the people at that very moment are breaking the covenant by worshiping a golden calf. They can't do it. That's why he puts in the sacrificial system. With David, he makes this covenant with David, knowing that four chapters later, David would murder a man and then many more men to cover up an affair with his wife. God knows that no one can keep their side of the covenant. So really, with all these covenants, you see God keeping both sides of the covenant. Now let's get to what we're in, the new covenant. God makes a covenant with us, a new covenant through Jesus, knowing that we are going to fall short. Let's look at Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 34. We don't, uh, you don't have to turn there. We'll have it on the board. This is back in the Old Testament, and it's while these old covenants are going on, he's pointing towards this new covenant. Pause. I promise this has everything to do with marriage, and this has everything to do with purity now for you guys as single people. We're getting there. We need to paint a picture of covenants first. So with the new covenant, back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to make a new covenant, not like that covenant, that covenant they broke, even though I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law inside of them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will everybody teach their neighbor and their brother saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their sins. I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. You see, in the new covenant with Jesus, he knows that we will break it too. He knows that we can't live holy lives. And so it's crazy what he does with this covenant to meet both sides is that God enters into humanity. Jesus comes in a body like ours to uphold our end. He keeps the law. What's our, what's our responsibility? You want to be right with God? You must be perfect. We can't do that. So what he does is Jesus enters into our place And then he lives a perfect life for us. He upholds the law. And then in the cross, he gives us his law keeping. He gives us his perfection. He's keeping both sides of the law. And what's crazy is when we break the curse, you remember when they split the animals, they'd be like, I'm sorry, when we break the covenant, when they split the animals, they'd be like, if I break this covenant, let this happen to me. Jesus also pays the price for our covenant breaking because his body was broken for us. He paid the price of the curse. He became a curse for us, and his body was broken. So with Jesus, he keeps both sides of the covenant. He keeps the God side of the covenant, and he keeps the man side of the covenant, and he pays the price so that we can have his law keeping. He's doing all the work. Now, we're responsible. We have to have faith, but just like with Abraham, he gives us that faith. He's basically, he's doing all the work. He's given the promises, and then he's upholding the conditions. God does his part knowing that we will not and cannot and don't even want to keep our part. And gives us the faith and the obedience we need. He's doing all the work. All right. So why are we talking about covenants? When we think about the marriage covenant, why are we talking about all these covenants? When we think about what the marriage covenant is, marriage is a skit. 
right? Marriage is a drama. It's a play, in a sense. Because what marriage is supposed to do is supposed to portray something else. It's a picture or a drama of Jesus and the church. It's a picture or a drama of this relationship, of God upholding both sides of the covenant. It's a, it's a skit so that we can display Christ and the church to the world. See, marriage is based on the strong rock of authentic covenant love. So why do we see so many marriages, even marriages within the church, that are miserable looking? You see two people, and it looks like they can hardly stand each other. They barely talk to each other at restaurants. They spend all their time on their phone. They're kind of impolite to one another. Why, if marriage is so good, why does it look so miserable most of the time? I, I think because many marriages aren't functioning as a covenant. They're functioning as emotionally-based contracts, right? as emotionally-based contracts. Why do I say emotionally-based contracts? See, we see marriages that are based on emotion. You've seen this before, where basically people say, okay, as long as I always feel the same about you, uh, and as long as you feel the same about, as long as we stay in love, then this will work out. If we ever, like, fall out of love, or if we ever really stop liking you, it's kind of over. So they see marriages that are based on emotion. Other people will base marriages like a contract. And what they'll do is they'll say, okay, I'll keep my part in the marriage as long as you do your part. As long as you do your part, I'll do my part. This will work out. This is like emotionally based contract language. As long as I feel the same about you for the next 60 years, and as long as you meet my needs and do your part, this will all work out. What people do in having miserable marriages is they act like two men making a contract agreement. I do my part. I'll do my part. As long as we stay feeling like we're in love, this marriage is going to work out. That's not what a covenant is like in the scripture. Because when you see God's love in covenant in the scripture, we give, we, we do our part even if the other person doesn't do their part. We love like Christ, even if that person doesn't do their part. See, there's a verse in Ephesians 5, we talked about this in the marriage conference, where it says, the husband is supposed to love his wife. And the wife is supposed to respect her husband. And so what people will do is they'll contract that out. And the husband will be like, okay, I'll love you as long as you respect me. And the wife's like, well, I'll respect you as long as you give me some love. And it's a stalemate. Neither side wins in that. Because it's a contract. It's not like a covenant. And the the reality is contract-based marriages, they're miserable. They can't weather the storm of somebody cheating on somebody. They can't weather the storms of marriage, you know, you think, so a lot of marriages, they're like, uh, all right, so these contracts aren't working out, so I'll rely on my feelings, right? You know, your feelings are the most fickle thing about you. Really, your feelings change just like that. How are you supposed to feel in love with the same person for the next 70 years? Your feelings change based on the song on the radio, right? You got a happy song on the radio? Oh, you're all happy. And then Adele comes on the radio, and you're like, oh my gosh, what is life? You know, <laughs> you know, your feelings can change based on what you just ate. You cannot base a marriage on something that changes just like that. It changes based on what movie you watch. You're going to base a marriage on the, on the hopes that you're going to feel the same about this person for the next six decades? It will fail. You, you can't base a marriage on contract. You can't base a marriage on feelings. You can't base a marriage on attraction. 
That person right now that you got your eye on that is so cute and so good looking is going to get old and is going to get saggy and is going to be ugly soon, right? Your attraction is going to change. And you know what's even more dangerous? One day you're going to be more attracted to someone else. Can your marriage survive that? If it's based on attraction alone, no, it can't. No, it can't. Physical touch, is that strong enough to uphold a marriage? Nope. Or else people wouldn't get divorced. So if marriage can't be based on contract or feelings alone, what can it be based on? See, we need to mirror God in covenant. A covenant says, I love you even if you can't do your part. See, a contract is 50-50, right? A contract, I'll do my part if you do your part, right? A covenant is 100-100. I promise I will do my part even if you do not do your part. And imagine a marriage. Imagine how happy it, was, it would be if both people are committing to do that. And I, too, I will do my part even if you don't do your part. I will be with you. I will love you even if you're not attractive. I will be with you and love you even if you're a butthole one day. I will love you and be with you even if this covenant marriage, man, a successful marriage comes from both people mirroring Christ's covenantal commitment. We commit to do 100% of the work. And the other person does too. And we love like Christ does. All right. Sounds great. Can we duplicate that? No, not perfectly, but we can imitate it. So why am I telling you all of this? Because the reality is almost all of you guys are going to get married one day. And you need to know the foundation of authentic covenantal love, authentic marriage love. And so once we know the basis of covenant marriage that loves like Christ loves, like we've seen him love through the Abrahamic, Noahic, Davidic, all these covenants in the Old Testament, the question is, okay, so yeah, but I'm 15. So what am I supposed to do right now? That's what the rest of this conference is about. That's what the whole conference is about. How do you behave right now to prep yourself to be in this type of covenant marriage with authentic Christ-centered love? That's what the rest of it's about. But see, the foundation uh, of living out a Christ-centered marriage is becoming a Christ-centered single person. You see, the reality is, if you are selfish right now and not following Christ, and the person you got your eye on, they're also selfish and not following Christ, what makes you think that when you stand right here before a preacher and make make your vows, all of a sudden you're going to have such a glorious Christ-centered marriage? There's nothing magic about this. If you want a Christ-centered marriage, right now you need to be a Christ-centered single person, right? Now, this conference is all about purity. And we're talking about sexual purity, purity in relationships. And the basis and the goal of that is Christ-centered authentic love. That's why, I mean, lost people would think, why on earth would I not have sex? Like, we're not just preaching abstinence for abstinence's sake, right? We're not just saying, hey, don't have sex with anybody right now because it's a rule. Okay? Let that be motivational for you in a world that preaches sex is everything, sex is everything. Uh, But no, we got a rule. We're not preaching rule following what we're doing. You know, people would think, "Why why in the world would I delete that happiness from my life? And what we're saying is for a better, greater joy because this is how the designer intended it to be. A Christ-centered, authentic covenant love. So let me just give three quick thoughts 
and we'll wrap it up. Three quick thoughts about marriage and about prepping for marriage. Now, we are going to be in sessions all weekend. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have split guys and girls. Then tomorrow night and Sunday morning. So we're going to have a lot of thoughts on how you can prep right now. But it's important that we get the basis and the goal, which is covenant marriage love. So thinking about that, how do we prep right now? Let me just give three general thoughts about marriage. The first one is this. Marriage is sacred. It's sacred. What I mean by that, man, in our culture, we have so few sacred things. There's nothing that's off limits to joke about, right? But marriage is sacred because it's something that God has set up as a display of Christ in the church. Your future marriage is supposed to be a play, a drama that mirrors Christ in the church. Your marriage is going to preach something to the world about what Jesus is like about what Jesus' love for his people is like. Now, but what we've done is, in the world, we've taken the sacred out of marriage. We've made it common. We've taken the sacred out of sex and made it common. It's so common. You can just turn on the radio and every song is about sex. We've taken the sacred part out of it. And the reality is, you get to be a part of this picture of Christ in the church, and sex is part of that. The most intimate physical part of Christ and the church, like it's a picture of the intimacy that Christ has with us, and your marriage and your sexuality display Christ to the world. So the question is, if marriage preaches a sermon to the world about Christ, what does your singleness say right now? How are you prepping to preach that sermon? How are you prepping to, to uphold and display the sacredness of marriage? It is going to be countercultural. This is one of the most unpopular things about Christianity is that we say, save yourself until marriage. And the world says, y'all are stupid. That is a dumb idea. And in reality, if pursuing godly marriage instead of sex sounds like a restriction of joy, we, we don't get it. This is about maximum glory for God, which means maximum happiness for you, even sexually. Maximum glory for God means maximum happiness for you, even sexually. So, number one, marriage is sacred. Number two, a good marriage is about serving and giving, not taking. You can practice that now. It's about serving and giving, not taking. Because sex before marriage is about taking. It's not about serving and giving. You see, it's, it's not covenant love. It's not. It's not based on that bedrock. It's not covenanting together and saying, I will love you no matter what. It's saying, this feels good. I want to feel accepted by you. I want to feel close to you. But feelings plus physical touch does not equal authentic love. It falls short. And many of you have experienced that and experienced the fallout from that non-authentic love. And it hurts if you've been there, it hurts deep. And I'll tell you this, even if you've messed up in the past, there's forgiveness for that. God knows we can't uphold our end of the covenant. There is forgiveness and Christ's holiness is stronger than our sin. His grace is stronger than our sin, right? You can have, even if you've screwed up a lot in the past, you can have a Christ-centered, biblical, God-honoring marriage with covenantal love. Marriage is bigger than just not being alone. A lot of people want to get married because they're scared of being alone for the rest of their lives. Marriage is bigger than that because you know you can be lonely and married, and that is a way worse thing, right? You think, I want to get married because I'm really lonely. Yeah, don't hurry up because you might be married and lonely, and that is a miserable thing to think about, right? 
Marriage is bigger than just not being alone. It's bigger than just guilt-free sex. Marriage is about displaying God and being made more like God. See, marriage is hard, and it's beautiful. It's so, so, so much better than just common casual sex. And if we don't see that, and if we don't value that, then we need a new scoreboard, for real. If we don't see that covenant love as more valuable, you need a new value system. It's broken. It still looks like the world's, right? We need a new scoreboard in that. If we value sex more than we value this uh, covenantal authentic love. So we need to prepare ourselves for biblical marriage by serving and giving in our relationships right now. You can prepare yourself to serve your spouse and to give to your spouse. You can prepare for that in the way that you serve and give to other people right now. If you're a taker right now, you will be a taker in marriage, right? Third point, you can prepare for a good marriage now by authentically loving those around you. And I'll tell you this, you hope that someone is also preparing for marriage by authentically loving your spouse. Here's the reality probably somebody's dating your future spouse right now. Everything about that? Somebody is dating your husband right now. Somebody is dating your future wife right now. What advice would you give that person? Have sex as much as you want. No, you would not. Back off. <laughs> Break up now. <laughs> what, what advice would you give that person, right? You can prepare for a good marriage now by authentically loving those around you because in reality, if you're dating somebody right now, you're probably statistically dating someone else's wife or husband. Treat them with honor. Treat them with purity. You can authentically love and point people to Christ right now. We need to be driven by wisdom at your stage in life three, five, ten years away from marriage, you don't need to be driven by your feelings and your sexual impulses. You need to be driven by wisdom. That's what you need right now is wisdom. If you let your feelings take the wheel and drive, they will lead you to hurtful places because they change, they change, they change. You will not feel the same way in three, seven years when you get married as you do right now. You will not be attracted to the same type of person. If you want a marriage that honors Christ and leads to maximum pleasure and happiness, it begins now with having relationships with the opposite sex that honor Christ. It begins now. Well, what's crazy is just like Jesus' love for you and his pursuit of you began before you met him. You think about that for a second. You remember Ephesians 1, it talks about how he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So Jesus' love for you And his pursuit of you began long before you met him. So just like that, your love and pursuit of your spouse begins now, even before you meet him, in the way that you behave towards one another. And so we're to love and pursue our spouse, even though we don't know them yet. We're to love and pursue our spouse like Christ loved and pursued us. And these behaviors, they find their root and they find their goal in authentic covenant love. See, covenant love is the soil. It's the ground in which the beautiful flower of marriage love grows. It's the soil, right? What does that look like practically? That's what we're going to talk about all weekend. So we're going to pray. We're going to sing another song. And then let's go to small groups. And we're going to unpack this idea of covenant love. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would please let us value true biblical covenantal love more than we value common sex.
I pray that we would listen to your scripture more than we listen to our impulses. I pray that we would think more on covenant than we do on loneliness. God, I pray for these guys and girls. I I know probably some in the room didn't even know that we're going to be talking about like premarital sex and stuff for this weekend. God, but I pray that your Holy Spirit has um, prepared that soil, God, that you prepare our minds to hear what you have for us this weekend. I pray that even tonight as we go to small groups that you would uh, cause us to just have such a rich view of biblical covenantal love. God, and that we would prepare ourselves to be the kind of people that say, I will love no matter what, no matter what, that we would mirror you in covenantal love. And I pray that we begin to see that that starts now, not at the altar. God, I pray that you would uh, just help us to worship you now, God, and prep us for uh, the, the days to come. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.